A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. There are few turnaround stories in the world of business so tied to a single product as the tale of Apple and its iPhone. But 15 years on, the company is going to need another blockbuster gizmo, or more likely to move its focus away from gizmos. And France is suffering a shortage of one of its most beloved condiments. Our Paris bureau chief explains why and heads to Dijon to try a score a pot of nose-stinging gold. First up, though. Mr. Trump, can we have a word, sir? As he left Trump Tower yesterday, the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, stayed silent. How do you feel, Mr. Trump? How do you feel? At his destination, the New York Attorney General's office, that silence continued. Mr. Trump refused to answer questions in the state's investigation into his family's business practices, invoking his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination something he'd previously mocked. You see, the mob takes the fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? And yet that was not the most extraordinary moment in Mr. Trump's week. We have a breaking Fox News alert. The FBI has raided former President Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago. On Monday evening, he revealed the FBI had executed a search warrant at his Florida home, something that has never happened to a former president. Legally, it's been a really difficult couple of days for former President Trump. James Bennett is our Lexington columnist. FBI agents searched his home, Mar-a-Lago in Florida, apparently looking for classified documents. The former president also lost on appeal in an effort to prevent a House committee from getting a hold of his tax records. And he took the fifth in yet another investigation, this one by the New York State Attorney General, into what might have been tax avoidance practices at his business. So it's been rough. It looks like he's on the ropes on several fronts, legally, but politically, it's been a pretty good couple days for Donald Trump. Well, we'll get into that paradox of the difference between legal and political outcomes in a bit. But let's, let's start with Mar-a-Lago. What do we know about the raid so far? I really think we should emphasize how much we don't know about this raid. Uh, we know that it happened. It's been characterized largely by the president and his allies so far. The Justice Department isn't really saying anything about it. There's been a lot of reporting anonymously sourced that suggests this raid is about a search for classified documents that the president is said to possibly have taken with him from the White House. And it's 
It's a bit puzzling because presidents actually have tremendous power to declassify information. It's very hard to believe that the Justice Department wouldn't have taken this step without some grave concern about national security or criminality, just because the political stakes are so high for the country. But we really don't know. And we haven't seen even the warrant under which this search was executed, although my understanding would be well within the president's own rights to release that warrant to the press. Now, James, you said that even though it's been a legally challenging few days, it's been good for him politically. Why is that? Well, I think this is, in a sense, empowering to Donald Trump. The day the raid was executed, the search was executed, was the second or third rare good day in a um, news cycle for President Joe Biden. The Democrats had racked up a number of surprising accomplishments legislatively in a row. And Donald Trump appeared to be fading. Various rivals were emerging to him for the Republican presidential nomination. And one effect of this action by the FBI has been really to consolidate Donald Trump's support once again. I mean, even his potential rivals for the nomination immediately rallied to defend him. Republican lawmakers rallied as well behind him. And once again, Donald Trump is at the white hot center of the national debate, which is where he loves to be. And in all those ways, this action by the government, which does put Donald Trump in further legal jeopardy, has strengthened his hand politically. Well, let's talk about the legal jeopardy now. Is there a chance that were charges to be filed or were he to be convicted that that would bar him from running in the next election? I don't think so. It's never been tested. But, and again, I'm way out over my skis here, John, because we have no idea if he's even going to be indicted. We have no idea where this may be headed, but it does seem like there's a real chance it could be going in this direction. So I think it's, it is well worth all of us stopping to consider what this could mean. The Constitution is quite clear about what the requirements are uh, for serving as president of the United States. And it does not list having a criminal record as being disqualified. So even if there were a legal attempt to bar someone who'd been indicted or even convicted from running for president, I think what we would see would be a lot of litigation and a lot of legal experts think in the end that candidate would be able to run and if elected would be able to serve. All right, let's move on to discuss the other set of legal troubles that, that President Trump is facing You mentioned that he took the fifth in New York yesterday. Can you first explain what it means to take the fifth and then tell us about that, that case in which he did so? Well, invoking the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution is invoking the right that all Americans have against self-incrimination. And when somebody takes the fifth, people tend to leap to the conclusion that that is, if not evidence, at least a strong implication that they they know they've done something wrong, and that's unfair and wrong. You know, we shouldn't infer that. We don't know why he took the fifth. And that case is a civil case, not a criminal case. The state of New York, Tish James, the attorney general, has been investigating potential tax avoidance schemes by the Trump organization, whether the Trump organization deliberately underestimated the value of particular assets when 
paying taxes on. James, if he were to be either convicted on charges stemming from this raid at Mar-a-Lago or were to be found guilty in the civil matter that Attorney General Letitia James is pursuing in New York, would that change anything regarding his standing with the Republican Party? Based on what we've seen over the last few years, I think it's really unlikely to change his standing much. People are intensely loyal to him, and I just don't think those that are still loyal to him are likely to take the word of the New York State Attorney General or the Attorney General of the United States over Donald Trump's, or even the conclusions of a jury of his peers. They, they trust the president more and believe in the former president more than they do in anybody else in American public life. So it's hard to see how it shakes their loyalty to him. And the leadership of the Republican Party has so far gone where those supporters have pointed them. So then ultimately, where does that leave the country? I mean, if there is evidence of wrongdoing and authorities don't pursue it, then he potentially gets away with crimes. If there's evidence of wrongdoing and authorities do pursue it, it redounds to his political advantage. What should authorities do about that paradox? It's a paradox, but it's also just a terrible trap, John. It just feels like all of us are trapped by this sick dynamic that keeps the psychodrama of Donald Trump at the center of American public life, inescapably. We don't know what the decision-making process was behind executing this warrant, but it does feel as though the Justice Department was boxed in. It has to pursue the evidence where it leads. Nobody is above the law, as we constantly remind ourselves in the U.S. Nobody is at least supposed to be above the law, and it's you know, important uh, for the sake of justice in America to vindicate that principle. But the act of doing that in this case arguably strengthens the very target of, of justice in this case. But setting aside whether Donald Trump might be guilty of anything simply intensifies the really terrible political polarization and anger in the country and just sets up a collision between Donald Trump supporters and the institutions of American governance, like we witnessed, I'm afraid, on January 6th of 2021. All right, James, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, John. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. It's 15 years since Apple's then-boss Steve Jobs introduced us to a small but powerful piece of technology. This is one device, and we are calling it iPhone. That one device put Apple's growth through the roof. It became the first company to be worth a trillion dollars, and then the first to be worth two trillion, and then three. The iPhone is still bringing in the cash, it accounted for more than $40 billion in revenue in the last quarter alone. But what happens when at last everyone who's going to get an iPhone 
has one. As the worldwide smartphone market matures, the iPhone's dominant role in Apple's fortunes is diminishing. Tom Wainwright is The Economist's tech and media editor. At its peak, the iPhone made up two-thirds of Apple's revenue, but in the latest quarter, that contribution was just under half. So it seems if Apple wants to keep growing, it will have to look for new revenue streams beyond the iPhone. Well, let's wind back a bit. How did a company that started out as a computer company end up making that much of its money from phones in the first place? Well, you know, for Apple's first three decades or so, it really was a computer company. It was called Apple Computer, and that's exactly what it made. It started off with its desktop computers. This is an Apple II, the original personal computer. You can use this Apple thousands of ways to be more productive. Apple, the personal computer. And later it got into laptops. It's not a notebook, it's a PowerBook. Hardly weighs anything. This lets me do it. PowerBook from Apple. But it was in 2006 that, for the first time, its Macintosh desktops and laptops were overtaken in terms of revenue by something else. iPod, a thousand songs in your pocket. And then the next year, the company launched the iPhone and it dropped the word computer from its name entirely and became simply Apple. And over the next decade, the iPhone simply grew and grew until in 2015, iPhone sales amounted to $155 billion, which was two thirds of all of Apple's revenue. But that number is still half, right? It's, it's raking in the money, it's still selling these phones, still the world's most valuable company. So what's the problem? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's still a, a huge seller. It's still by far Apple's most important product, and it's certainly not going away. But worldwide smartphone sales really now have plateaued. We've had many years in which they've been zooming up every year as more and more corners of the world discover the smartphone. And that now has stopped. People predict that worldwide sales of smartphones are going to be flat. Now, Apple can continue to grow its iPhone business. It needs to try and get more market share of that market. But the kind of mega growth that we've seen in the past really is at an end. But Apple has this history of coming up with path-breaking products like the iPod, like the iPhone. Why not just find another market-breaking gizmo? Oh, they're doing that too. I mean, you know, if you look at some of the stuff they've been doing in recent years, they've come up with the Apple Watch, which has become the leading smartwatch. They've got these AirPods, which are the smart headphones. Next year, they're expected to launch the first AR glasses or headset. And that's a category that some people think could be huge. There's also speculation that they might be getting into cars. So they're making all these various bets and they've got other things going on as well, like healthcare, all kinds of stuff. But all of these are fairly uncertain. And so at the same time that they're coming up with all these new gadgets, they've actually got another strategy underway as well, which is perhaps a bit more certain. Which is what? Well, we know Apple mostly as a hardware company, a maker of these amazing gadgets. But as well as making these products, increasingly it is selling people services. And the idea here is that they've got nearly 2 billion gadgets out there currently being used. This is iPhones, computers, AirPods, whatever. And they're now using those nearly 2 billion gadgets, not just as products to sell, but as points of sale in their own right. So in other words, if you own an iPhone or an Apple Watch or whatever, Apple now hopes that they can sell you stuff through that gadget. And this services business is increasingly important for Apple. Last year, it made up nearly 20% of all of Apple's revenue, which was about double the share that it had made up seven years earlier. So this is a growing area for Apple, and it's a pretty sure bet compared with some of the riskier gadgets that it's got under development, which could be the next iPhone, but could very well not be. So what kind of services are we talking about here? This is more than just Apple iCloud, that kind of thing. Yeah, it is. I mean, some of them are services that Apple, in effect, sells to other companies. So the biggest chunk of the services revenue that Apple gets, we think, is probably from the App Store, where Apple takes a cut of every purchase. 
Apple also charges Google a lot of money to be the default search engine on the Safari browser in iOS. So those are the two biggest things. But then there are other things too. Apple's got quite a fast-growing advertising business. You know, now if you search for apps in the App Store, you'll see ads there. and Apple gets money for selling people that ad space. And then Apple has a range of kind of consumer services, subscription services that it's begun selling to people. So that's things like Apple TV+, Plus, Apple Fitness, Apple Arcade, Apple Music, all of that stuff. And it's launching more of these things all the time. So just last November, for instance, they launched a new subscription service called Apple Business Essentials, which is a kind of tech support and device management service for small companies. Back in June, they announced a buy now, pay later service. So it's a category that's growing all the time with these new examples. And at the beginning of the year, Apple said that altogether it had 860 million active pays subscriptions of one kind or another, which is nearly a quarter more than it had a year previously. And you suggested that, that Apple's play for the services market was somehow a more certain one. Yeah, I mean, only in the sense that these gadgets that's developing, no one knows if they're going to be hits or flops. You know, augmented reality, some people think is going to be the next iPhone. Other people think it's a kind of expensive waste of time. And nobody knows that yet, right? Whereas this services revenue is recurring revenue. A lot of it's monthly subscriptions. So it's relatively speaking a sure thing. And that makes it very attractive to Apple as a complement to its hardware business, which I think will always remain the biggest part of Apple's business but it's useful for Apple to be diversifying in this way. The services business is also incredibly profitable. So the margin on Apple's products, so things like iPhones and computers, last year was 35%, whereas the margin on its services business was 72%. So you're describing quite a fundamental shift here, not unlike the one that, that got computers out of Apple's name here. Do you see a, a similar thing that we're heading towards a world where Apple is more of a services company? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think Apple's always going to be mainly a hardware company, but this is an important new line for it. And as the iPhone drops as a share of Apple's total revenue, it's services that is growing its share more quickly than any other category at the moment. And there are signs that Apple itself wants investors to think of it as being more of a services company than they have in the past. So it's disclosing more information about its estimated number of active devices, which is the kind of information that a subscription company might normally give out. And Tim Cook, the chief executive of Apple, recently said that integrating Apple's services with its hardware and software was at the center of their work and philosophy. So it's something that they're really mainlining on. And soon you may even be able to buy an iPhone on a subscription basis. It's said that Apple is working on a subscription plan for the iPhone where you'd pay monthly for regular updates and so on. So I think there's no doubt that consumers are going to carry on buying Apple's devices, but from now on, when they do so, they're not just getting a new gadget for themselves, they're getting a tiny little digital storefront for Apple. Tom, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. There's a mystery afoot in France. Where is all the Dijon mustard. It's becoming a hot commodity as many search high and low for a hit of the nose-tingling condiment. Well, since the spring in France, supermarkets have pretty much just been out of stock of Dijon mustards, which seemed very surprising and it went on and on. And it seemed to me that the one place in France that ought to have stock and that might make an interesting place to visit to try and work out why was Dijon itself. Sophie Petter is the Economist Paris bureau chief. 
I've just arrived in uh, Dijon in the Burgundy region of France and I am on a mission to try and find some Dijon mustard. So I went there thinking, you know, this is the home of the brand of Dijon mustard that is world famous. It's got a history that goes back to 1634 when the craft of the moutardier, the guy who makes mustard, was first enshrined with rules and protection. And if I went into the first shop and the shopkeeper said, of course, there was none. And he pointed to the empty shelves and said that there had been a delivery that morning, but it had run out straight away. And at the next stop, exactly the same, um, nothing on the shelves at all. In fact, the shopkeeper there was very helpful. He did say that there was an alternative that he did have in stock pointing to this sort of squeezable plastic yellow bottle of a sauce that is called French's, a mild American mustard, which doesn't have any of the king of Dijon. And he said apologetically, it's not Dijon mustard though, sorry. So where has all the mustard gone? Well, it turns out that to make Dijon mustard, you need the brown mustard seeds. These come from Canada and France imports 80% of these seeds from that country. But Last year, because of a very severe drought and climate change, Canada's own mustard producers struggled. And the mustard harvest last year was half what it is in a normal year. Now, in ordinary times, the French manufacturers might have been able to look elsewhere, particularly to Ukraine or to Russia, to put in orders for these brown seeds. But obviously the war has blocked any prospect of doing that. And even local producers of mustard seeds, the brown ones that are needed for Dijon, just can't compensate. The head of the Burgundy Mustard Association told me that they're trying, but it's impossible for them to make up the difference. And as he said, the market is totally dry. There are zero stocks, nothing. Do you worry that this is a vision of the future, that as climate change increases, droughts will see more mustard shortages like this? Well, I think it's going to make a lot of the manufacturers think very hard about their supply chains and where they might source their mustard seeds from in future. Clearly, uncertainty over climate change, the sort of disruption that it's brought about this year is going to focus those minds. But so is the war in Ukraine. The longer that goes on, the more complicated it's going to make it for the French mustard manufacturers. And how are the French coping with the lack of mustard? Well, it's gripped the country for months now. And if you go into a shop, you'll sometimes find a sign saying only one pot allowed per customer when they do have deliveries. There are social media clips that people share making fun of how to get around rationing and whether there's a black market and mustard that's secretly taking place behind closed doors in France. One woman with a beret and a painted moustache declares, you know, a life without mustard isn't living, it's just existing. And then the French are trying to find an alternative to Dijon mustard for the recipes that they use it for, whether it's a vinaigrette or homemade mayonnaise, which a lot of French people make, or steak tartare, which is that dish made of raw meat and seasoned also with capers and egg yolk. But mustard is a big deal in France, particularly the really nose-tingling Dijon kind. They eat a kilo of mustard a year per person. And they don't much like this milder, sweeter sauce that gets slathered on hot dogs in America or Britain. How long do you think until stocks return? Well, the Burgundy Mustard Association told me that really the key point is going to come this autumn. 
At the moment, they are drying the locally harvested grains. And in September, they'll be able to start getting deliveries going to the factories and they'll start making it in October. But they don't grow enough. And they really are depending on this season's harvest in Canada. And now that hasn't yet taken place. And the French manufacturers aren't expecting to see Canadian grains until the end of the year. So at the moment, it looks as if the shortage of Dijon mustard in France is going to go through all the way until 20. 2023, and that's probably at the earliest. All right, Sophie, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,